section, we're going to look at 12 verses this morning, but this is some really important stuff. I think there are some vital keys in here to really figuring out how to, how to live the Christian life. Paul is expanding on some concepts that he introduced in the passage that we read last week in the end of chapter 3 and moving forward in a real practical and interesting way. So uh, back up to chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, just to remember where we left off. Paul's praying for the church in Thessalonica and, and saying, I'm so excited because here's what I'm praying for you. And in verse 12, he said, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So he says, man, I'm praying that you guys will love each other. I'm praying for your relationships. And then in verse 13, he explains where that leads. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, which he's going to get into later in the chapter and in chapter 5. But in a nutshell... What he is saying is, I'm praying that you guys will get more love because that leads to holiness. We talked a little bit last week about how love and holiness interact and love and holiness are connected. So many times when people aren't holy, it comes from not being loving. It comes from not being secure enough in relationships to really do things in the right way. But as I shared with you last week, holiness means being the best that you can be. It's being cleaned up. It's being doing things right. It's becoming more like Jesus. And he says, when love happens, that's what flows forth. If you think you're holy, but you're not loving, the Bible tells us you're fooling yourself. But love and holiness, important concepts for us to see how they connect together. And I mentioned last week a little bit that holiness gets a bad rap nowadays. And it's partly because I don't even think people really understand most of the time what sin is and what righteousness is. And so holiness for us almost seems like, oh shoot, we can't do anything we want to do. And God just wants to make us jump through hoops. A lot of people have the idea that God's commandments are more or less arbitrary, that his rules are sort of like the rules in a game. You know, somebody just made them up, that's why. So, you know, when you play basketball, a a regular field goal is two points. A field goal in football is three for some reason. But in basketball, a field goal can be three, but it has to be outside the line. You have to be a ball hog to shoot a three-pointer. A free throw is only worth one point. Why? Because I said so. That's why. It's just, it's the way the rules go. And sometimes they even change the rules for no apparent reason in sports. But sometimes we think God's that way. He just decided, okay, you need to be married to one person and be faithful to them the rest of your life because I said so. You need to tell the truth because I said so. You need to do this or do that. And Because of that, our concept of righteousness is really twisted as well. See, everything that God forbids, everything he makes a rule against, he didn't just make it up to force you to do something. God loves us so much that he knows what is best for us, 
And so if there's something that he knows, if people do it, it's going to be bad for them. It's going to mess them up. It's going to hurt them and hurt other people. Then he says that is a sin. That is something that misses the mark. It's not good for you. Leave it alone. Move away from that kind of behavior. It's as simple as that. God loves you and therefore wants you to do what's right and to not do what's wrong. Now, because we misunderstand that concept, most people, if they obey God, they're doing it for the wrong reason. It's like, okay, I follow God's rules because that's going to make me, you know, please him and make him happy somehow, and he's going to love me more. Or it's going to move me, it's going to make me know that I'm a real Christian, or it's going to let, let me feel better than other people. And, and sometimes, even at our highest level of obedience, sometimes the best we can do is to say, you know, God's done so much for me, it's time for me to do something for him. So God, I will obey you for you. God, I'm going to throw you a bone, I'm going to do you a favor. And see, it comes out of a sense of God as seeing God like Dana Carvey as the church lady. Like God's like superly oversensitive. And if you do certain things, ooh, it grosses him out. And, you know, if you do other things, oh, it makes him so proud. And, he's so, and, so, and so we think that God is the guy that you have to be careful because he has these ears that can just be devastated if we do something wrong. Or we're really going to hurt his feelings. Now, God is in pain when we disobey. But it's not because he's a prude. It's because he loves us. And it hurts him to see us hurt ourselves. Now, the best, it's not like if I watch a basketball game and I see somebody commit a foul, big deal. If he's on my team, I hope he doesn't get caught. (laughs) If he's on the other team, I'm mad at him because it might cause us to lose. But ultimately, it's no big offense against me. On the other hand, there are things that people who I love do, and when I see them do, it it hurts me. And it may be something only against themselves. I've known several young girls who I watched trying to destroy themselves through eating disorders. And they, they shrunk down to where they were skin and bones, and they were dying, and they were in the hospital... But when they look in the mirror, they thought they were fat, and they continued to starve themselves. And, and they felt like they were doing good. That's what's so devastating about it, about anorexia and bulimia. But man, to watch somebody you love shrivel up and die, that hurts. And if you've ever seen someone that you love struggle with that, or you know, cutting themselves or doing other things that hurt themselves, you know that's devastating. That's painful. Well, that's what God is going through as he looks at us disobeying him and doing things that destroy us and everyone else. And he's like, no, I want you to be the best that you can be, but you're not living up to that. It's not that he's offended. It's that he cares enough about us that he hates to see us hurting ourselves and hurting each other. And Most people don't understand that, and so they have a warped perspective of what it is to obey God and why we should. Um, It's for our good. Everything that God does is is about Him blessing us. And so with that as an 
introduction, let's take a look at this chapter. and We'll work through, well, these first 12 verses, I'll explain a few things as we go through and, and then come back and try to get the big picture. He says, finally then, brethren, and that word doesn't mean I'm done. What he's meaning is I'm wrapping up and summarizing what I've just been telling you. So finally then, brethren, in the light of what we just said, I urge and I exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. He, he's talking to them about a process. He isn't saying, you guys aren't loving and you're not holy. He's saying, no, you are. But man, I want more for you. I want you to continue to progress. He uses that abound more and more, and then down in verse 10, he says that they would increase more and more. The idea is this is a path that we are on for our entire life. So you're doing good, but hey, let's just keep moving. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, your being set apart, your being clean, in order that, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. The word there, usually translated fornication, just means don't do anything that isn't using your sexuality in the proper context of marriage. Anything outside of that, any adultery, any kind of pornography, any kind of you know, premarital sex or any of that stuff, he goes, this is an area where, and in their culture, um, it was running rampant. And he goes, I'm telling you, God wants you to avoid that, to stay away from that, to not live that way. That's a part of holiness is to abstain from that. And he knows that's tough, but he's calling us to abstain. He said that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Or in the interest of being set apart and in the interest of honoring and respecting your own body, he says, I want you to possess it. The word there means to acquire it. And we're going to come back and talk about that in a moment. So I'll leave it for now. And then he contrasts that with the world, or as he says, the Gentiles. Paul as a Jew is so used to having the Gentiles be the bad guys that now he says, Christians and Gentiles, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The word there for passion is the Greek word pathos. It means that you want something so bad that it hurts. You just can't control it. And the word for lust is the word um, thumia, which is to breathe hard, and epi, so it's epithumia, which is like, this is consuming you. You are obsessed with this. You're breathing hard, wanting this so bad. And he says, basically, that's what the world does. They do whatever they're driven to do. And he goes, I have a, have a better option for you. But, he says, they don't know God. In order that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. He says, anytime you violate what God says, especially in this area of your physical life, especially in this area of sexuality, 
He said, you're ripping somebody off. You are, and, and, and you might go, well, sometimes you can definitely see. Hey, if you're taking someone's innocence, yeah. If you're cheating with someone's partner or you're cheating on your partner, easy to see how he could say you're defrauding, you're ripping off. But the truth is everything that sacrifices your purity is robbing you and robbing who God is going to eventually have you to be with. And if you are committed to someone and, and, you're, and you're receiving stimulation or gratification through looking at images or whatever, you're stealing from someone who's entitled to that affection and to that intimacy you're taking it for yourself. Now, even if you go, I don't have anyone, so it's not a problem. Well, pornography is a huge industry because people will pay for it. And you go, well, I never pay for it. It's free all the time now on the internet. No, every time you click, someone gets money through ads and things like that. So today, people who indulge in that, you're taking advantage of the people who make money off of that, many of whom are total victims, some of whom are just too stupid to know any better, and their lives are being destroyed by what you're doing. You're stealing from someone, you're ripping them off, and so that's what he's saying. I'll never finish this message if I don't move on. <laughs> and he says, God's going to get even in that kind of stuff. For God did not call us to uncleanness. The Greek word is a catharsis, not healing. He goes, God didn't put you in this world so that you can be unhealthy for people. He put you here so that you would be a, a force for, for health and blessing. But in holiness, he wants you to become everything that he can make you. Therefore, he who rejects this doesn't reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's inside you if you're a Christian, and he can show you that this is true if you're just open to it. And then he says, but concerning brotherly love, coming back to that again, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. When did God say that? Well, when Jesus said it. He said, you know that. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You guys have a reputation for being loving, but we urge you, brethren, that you would increase more and more. You can always be more loving. You can always allow your love to extend some more. And then he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And that's a pretty extensive verse, so we'll come back to it and talk about it. But this is what he basically tells them practically to do. That you may walk properly toward those who are outside, have a good witness and be, have a good effect on others, and that you may lack nothing, that everything that's missing in your life from love and holiness will take place if you do this. Now, backing up and looking at the passage, Paul is giving us some lessons, some theoretical that we need to understand and some practical that we can actually do that can help us to abound in love and thus in holiness. This is important for us. This is what you were created to do. You will never be the person that God wants you to be, and you'll never be your best until you understand what he's saying here. Now, 
I want you to zoom in on a couple of passages, a couple of verses here, and, and phrases, really, in verse 4. He says, you need to know, and that is a process, you need to be learning how to be possessing your own vessel in sanctification and honor. The vessel he's referring to most likely is your body because that's the sins that he's addressing. There are some commentators who believe that the vessel is talking about a wife and it's saying, hey, if you're involved in sexual immorality, you better go find a wife. But I think that the body fits better with the context and most commentators would agree with me, the ones who don't aren't worth looking at. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but to possess, the word there means acquire. What he is saying is, own yourself. Take possession of yourself. Now, he is using this as a, as a, as a means to having victory over some of those things that destroy us, that block us from holiness. And, he, and really what he's talking about here is discipline. What he's talking about here is self-control. And we don't like to hear about that. Because so often we're out of control and we'd rather have an excuse for being out of control rather than to bring control in our lives. But what he is saying is you need to take ownership of your body. You need to take ownership of what you do with your time and with the people who are involved in your life, with your relationships. Until you get to self-control, you'll never be able to have decent relationships. That's why the fruit of the Spirit starts with love and it ends with self-control. And there are a whole lot of people who are trying to be loving, but they never get around to being disciplined. And as a result, their lives fall flat. And maybe they feel love, but they haven't found a way to show it because they just don't take the time to express it. Because they're so busy, their life is so out of control, there's no room for people in the equation I have too much to do. And so he's saying, hey, get a handle on this, on you. Take possession of your own body. Bring it under control. Paul talks about, he said, I buffet my body. That is, I train and, and make my body go through certain regimens. And the reason is so that he could put it into submission. That is so that his body would be available as a tool to do what he wants to do rather than he would be a victim of what's happened to his body. Now, in our day and age, there's a huge emphasis on looking back at your past and trying to figure out why you are who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. And I'm not going to put that down. I think there can be value in getting some insights into Huh, I wonder why I am the way I am. And often there are professionals who can help you to look back and discover that. And you may think that's great. You may need that. You may not. But inevitably what happens is you, you begin to understand why you are the way you are. But if you leave it at that, the best you can do is just blame someone else for the way that you are. So, yeah, you may be all messed up because your parents were a problem or because you had a bad school teacher or you lived in the wrong neighborhood or you were exposed to something that corrupted you. Yeah, all kinds of reasons and, and that's all tragic and that's all real. Hey, 
someone does something wrong, it will affect you. It does have an effect, but you can't stop there. Okay, you are who you are right now. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to just take, take, you know, feel sorry for yourself because of what you've endured? Or are you going to go, you know what? It is what it is. Now I want to be the best that I can be, and I want God to help me to do that. And that is a process, but that is something that we all have to attack through discipline, through self-control, that I begin to take control of that which is out of control in my life. Now, the Old Testament law, a lot of times we don't understand what that's about. Just like we don't understand sin sometimes, a lot of people don't get why God came up with all those restrictions. How come you can eat this and you can't eat that and you need to do this at that time and you need to tithe this much this time and at another time you need to tithe more and then you need to give offerings and you got one day a week when you shut down and you can't do anything and one year every seven years and, all, and you look at it and go, wow, that's just overwhelming. Well, what do you think God was trying to do? The New Testament points out to us that the law was good. The problem is we couldn't keep it. And so one thing the law did is let you know you need help. And certainly, <laughs> that was true. But here's the thing about the law, and it's the same thing about raising children, to teach people to deny their immediate you know, um, drives. To discipline is an important lesson to learn. And so everything that people were obsessed with, the law had ways of breaking us, the children of Israel, and, and, and forcing them to deprivation, to denial of some kind, in order to know that God could get you through that. I know you have a lot to do, but sorry, it's Friday night, the sun's going down, everything shuts off. The people just looked for loopholes. They didn't get how cool it is to realize that, you know what, if I don't do anything for a day, the world's going to be fine. My life's going to be fine. Now, every one of us has exactly as much money as we need to barely get by. Your definition of getting by adjusts with the amount of money that you have. For some people, having enough money means the minimum required payment on their credit card. But at any rate, most of us just don't have money to spare. So what does God say? Give money. You think it's because he needs your money? Of course not. It's because he wants you to discover that you can let go of something so precious to you, and he'll take care of you, and you'll still be fine. And an awful lot of the law was just for that purpose. Okay, this rule, this rule, this rule. A lot of it, there were also practical consequences, and there were health issues and things like that that were involved in some of the dietary restrictions. But also, God's just trying to let people realize, you know, you can take control. You can go against what you immediately feel like doing. One of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam in particular, there was apparently some sort of genetic damage to him, and sin entered into the world. And so, therefore, we are all born with the tendency to want things that aren't good for us and really to want to destroy ourselves. If you don't believe me, watch a little baby when they don't get what they want, 
And they begin often to throw themselves on the floor, slam their head on the wall, hit themselves. They'll pull their hair and all that kind of stuff. Well, you get a little older and, you know, you have less hair, so you quit that. But (laughs) it's like, hey, we've all got this condition. And if we don't get a handle on it, if we don't take ownership of ourselves, there are dire consequences And it's funny how even one area of life, when you bring discipline into your life, it affects other areas of your life. Sometimes one area is symbolic, or sometimes that one area is the area where you just go, okay, I have to control everything else, so I'm going to go crazy in this area. But at any rate, it's amazing how discipline in one area also trickles over into other areas, because We don't necessarily like order. Now, this is challenging for me because there are some areas of my life where I'm extremely disciplined. There are other areas, like if you look at my desktop, yeah, even on my computer, but my desk, literally, it's kind of a mess, like my mind. If you see my desk, you're seeing what my brain is doing. And It's important for me to learn to bring structure and discipline into that, to get control of that. So I work on that a lot, Um, varying degrees of success. And that's true for all of us, just in different areas. If I ate everything that I wanted to eat, man, would I be a mess. I'd be dead pretty soon, because I just only like bad things. There is not one healthy thing in this world that I want to eat, okay? (laughs) But I realize the consequences of that, and so I try to keep that under control by moderating and and watching what I eat. Because I realize, too, this has to do with more than just eating for me. This is about, am I going to control and take ownership of my life and my body, or am I going to let it run rampant and out of control like the Gentiles, as he says here, whose lives are just crazy, going every which direction, everything that they want, everything they desire, if it makes you breathe hard, you'll do it. And so a lot of this is about getting structure, and everyone's different. And so it might be disciplining the way that you eat or you exercise. It might be your financial life your budgetary life, it might be the way you use your time, it might be your relationships, it might, there are all kinds of things. It might be the way you do your job. But the point is, love and holiness are going to come about when we start to take responsibility for the vessel for what has been entrusted to us in, a, in an active and intentional and proactive way. And then Paul gives us some practical things. And so jumping back down into, well, we're almost out of time, but jumping down into verse 11, he kind of tells them some things to actually do. So if you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I want to take possession of myself. I want control of my life. I I want discipline. Now he gives us a a little way to kind of do that here in verse 11. And and so let me explain to you a little bit more specifically, because as you read it, you don't get the complete feel for what this actually means. 
that you also aspire to. Now, that's not a, a real bad translation, but I think you'll understand more what he's saying when I explain briefly the, the original word here. So, so the, the whole idea of aspiring to, it's the, it's the Greek word for, it's the Greek word philos or phileo or love or friendship merged together with, with the word that's uh, um, temos, which is to honor, and it's the verb form temeo, to put value on, but it's in the middle voice, temeomai, so it's all jammed together, philotemeomai is the Greek word, and you don't have to remember that for the test. But the idea is honoring and loving yourself. Now, that may sound real suspicious to you, but I'm sorry, that's the Greek word. And, but the point is, and that word came to, be, to have the significance of what are you dreaming and planning for? What is it that you really want to do? If you're going to envision yourself loved and loving and honored, what would, what would it be like? And so they translate the word, aspire to, desire, shoot for what you want, and whatever. But this is what he's talking about. Where are you going? What do you want your life to be in it at its best? And then he says, first of all, to lead a quiet life. To lead a quiet life. Now, that word is just, all those words are just one word in the Greek. And what it means is sit. Sit down. Stay. Settle down here a little bit. That's a, that's a word that scares a lot of us. When God says, be still and know that I am God, a lot of us live our lives in a frantic, you know, just obsessive level of activity because we're scared to death to stop. I know I'm this way. When I get home from work, if I've had a busy day, and I know that there's somewhere we need to be at 7 o'clock, I'll come home from work at, you know, 5.30 or something like that, and Ann will say, why don't you just sit down and relax? And I go, no. If I sit down, I don't think I can get back up. So I need to just keep moving so that I can keep my momentum going. A lot of us just live our lives that way with, a, with just frantic activity. And the more out of control your life is, by the way, the more frantic activity it takes just to keep it going. And so... But Paul is saying here, if you really want to take responsibility, learn to sit down. Learn to take a break. Again, as I said before, that's, that's what the Sabbath was about. Would you just sit down and stop? And so, you know, if we go, God, what do you want us to do? And he goes, well, first, stop and sit down. Sometimes we're afraid to do that. But see, People who fall victim to their own lusts, people whose lives end up being destructive and out of control, a lot of times these are high-achieving, high-energy, type-A personalities. And you think, how in the world does this happen? Well, somebody who's a phenomenally successful billion-dollar professional athlete adored by everyone and cannot control a simple area of his life, and you go, don't you realize what that's going to cost you? Didn't you ever think that this was going to catch up to you? And the answer is, no, I was moving so fast, I was driven so hard, 
I just didn't take time to think about it. I didn't realize the ramifications. It's the same thing when it's a politician. From a president on down, people get into power and they're just driven. And so often, their life gets out of control in some other area. And, it, and they don't realize it can bring them down because they never bothered stopping to think. And they just keep going. Um, Christian and other religious leaders, same thing. It's like, man, don't you realize you're on TV and you've got, the, you've got millions of people who know who you are? Don't you understand that when you go out somewhere and do something stupid, somebody's going to recognize you? No, because they've never stopped. They're so driven that it brings them to the point where they destroy themselves, destroy others in the process. But for all of us, his message is first, have you ever stopped? Have you ever thrown the brakes on? Take, a, take some time out? But then he says, if you want to, want to lead a quiet life or want to be still, want to settle down and stop. And then secondly, he said, you got to make a goal to mind your own business. Now that's kind of a, most of the versions that I looked up translated it this way, but it has nothing to do with mind, it has nothing to do with business. Um, it's, it's two words put together. One of them is the word prasso for practice. It means this is something you need to work at and go through the process of doing it. And the other word, the Greek word, as a part of this word, is idios. You could probably guess what that means. <laughs> idios or idiot doesn't actually mean stupid exactly. What, what the word means literally is private. You're in your own world. The reason that we have come to call something that's stupid idiot, idiocy, is because we look at someone and say, you are in your own world. I have no, you are an idiot. I have no idea what in the world was happening in your head when you did that. You're creating your own existence and you're living in your own private little world. And that's where this word comes from. We, a little kinder words are idiosyncrasies, which means you have a private way of, of syncretizing or connecting with others, uh, same kind of thing. Now, what he's saying here is, again, you need to work at who you are. Work at privacy. Work at being alone. Sit down. Now accept who you are. Accept your own idiosyncrasies. Deal with who you are, why you are the way you are, and allow God to work on that in a very private way. See, we are all idiots when it comes down to it. We're all individuals. We're all different. And we live in a world that tries to make us all the same. But the truth is, that at best creates a veneer of commonness. The truth is, every one of us is individual. And one reason we don't like to sit down is because we're scared to death to think. We're afraid to face who we really are. And we're even afraid to open up our hearts in a moment of silence and allow God to show us our own sin. So we can't see what we're doing wrong because we spend all of our time justifying ourselves to others and trying to make ourselves feel good and looking in the mirror and telling us how great we are so that we can just get back out there and do it again. And we could realize that we are all idiots, and that's okay. He made us that way. 
But really what, this, what these two words are saying is, get, take the time to get comfortable in your own skin. Quit playing games. Accept who you are. Accept where you are. Look for reality in your life. Begin to discover integrity of just being like, this is who I am. Because to live a lie will cause you to then be controlled by your glands, controlled by your lusts. But to get to the point where you can spend time alone with God, thinking about yourself, just letting your brain air out, allowing God to minister to you, allowing him to speak to you, takes some time. It doesn't usually happen on the run. It doesn't happen when it's like, okay, i got five, five minutes for devotions. Okay, God help me to do that stuff. Now I'm off to attack the day. Nope. We're all different. We're all individuals. And therefore, we need personal treatment from him to uproot and to clean out and to fix those issues that each of us has. Those of you who have multiple kids understand this. You know, there are a lot of people in in behaviorism who think that you should raise kids the way you raise animals. Even animals have individual personalities, but most of them you can teach to jump through hoops, but you want something more for your children. And the truth is each one of your children are different. In fact, day to day they are different sometimes. So if you don't learn to treat them that way, and the only way to do that as a parent is to rely on the Holy Spirit, to listen to Him and, and have Him give you wisdom. Otherwise, all you're going to do is train your kids to not embarrass you in front of your friends. You can mold them enough that they'll jump through the hoops, but is that what you want at the end of the day? Is that what you're really trying to do? See, it's this individuality that we all need to get in touch with ourselves. And that may frighten you, but you'll never get control of your life. And thus, you'll never be free to love and to be holy. You'll never be the best you can be until you discipline yourself to take the time to do this. And then our time is up, but he also says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That's kind of funny with the others. It's like, wait, sit down and stay. Um, Deal with your own idiosyncrasies. And now he says, get to work. But he specifically tells them to work in manual labor. And I think today a lot of people's lives are out of control because they've never, they don't have to do anything physical anymore. We're not farmers. We're not an agrarian society. We don't, most of us work with information. For, for so many of us, our workday is staying in one place, talking to people, answering questions, or sitting at a screen and punching things in or doing that. And it's rare for us to actually have to do any physical labor. But physical labor is such an important thing. And you know, people who, who deal with those who are depressed will tell you how important exercise is in getting those endorphins going and everything. It's really good for you to get some exercise, for instance. And that's all he's saying. Remember, Paul is a theologian. He's a writer. He's an apostle and a pastor. But he also made tents. And, and he did that, and he realized that was good for him. And he tells everybody else, hey, okay, if your job is not very physical, I suggest you look for a hobby. If you spend the day staring at a screen, 
don't spend your weekend just staring at a bigger screen. Come home and do something. Take up a hobby. Build something. This Saturday, a group of people are going down to the place in Mexico, the, the um, rehab facility and everything, Poema Ranch, that, that we're helping um, renovate. And you can show up here this Saturday at 6 o'clock in the morning, bring a passport, go down to Mexico. They're going to be stamping out concrete, which is a cool thing to learn. They're going to be doing electrical. They're going to be doing plumbing. They're going to be doing painting. They're going to be doing framing. And you don't have to have any experience. It's a chance for you to learn all those skills and not mess up your own house while you're doing it. <laughs> and it's like, I promise you, if you're thinking all week and on Saturday you go and spend the day doing that, you're going to feel so good. It's such an accomplishment. I know in my study at home, I wanted a wood floor, and so I laid it myself. It took me 10 times as long as if I had hired somebody to do it, and it hurt my knees and my back, and I, I was frustrated a lot of the time. But now when I walk in my study and I see that beautiful floor, it does something, because I did that. My boys helped me in a few spots, but I mean, I remember it. Not, yeah, I see every flaw, but still, it's like, boy, it was good to do something like that. And so Paul is telling them here, a part of taking control is getting your body into it. Do something good with it. Some physical activity, some, some level of work that allows you to get out of this. And what he says is, when you do that stuff and you've been commanded to do it, it's going to be a good witness and you'll lack nothing. You'll have everything that you need to be the best person that you can be if you just begin to take these steps. Now, I wish I had another half hour to preach on this, but you're going to have to finish it yourself. In your life, are you taking some time to settle down, to just sit? Are you taking some time to reflect on your own idiocy, <laughs> on your own private world, and, and ask God to, to work, to show you things that you've been afraid to look at? You haven't wanted to deal with. And then, is there a time when you're actually physically active, doing something, anything, in order to discipline your life? Now, I don't know what area God has for you. There may be an area of your life that instantly jumps up. Oh boy, that is out of control and I need to work on that. I need to discipline that. I need to take ownership in that area. But we're all different, so we all have different areas. Don't be proud because some of the areas of your life are disciplined. Look for the areas that don't and shore those things up. Spend some time with the Lord talking about it, facing it, being honest about it. And, and then as he says, it's a process. Don't, don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up. Go, oh man, you know, Dave just really hurt me today because it seems like every area. No, just you're doing fine. Just do it more and more. Grow in this. Keep the process moving. God is working. Keep it going. And it's amazing how when you pull one area of your life into discipline, it can give you the power to pull other areas of your life into discipline. We're all private. We're all interrelated. And this is something huge and key that God wants to do in our lives. And the result of it is love will come easier. It'll come more naturally. And as a result, holiness, you're going to become the best that you can be. You'll become more like him.
Because the barriers that have been keeping you from and holding you back from allowing God to deal with you, you've attacked them head on. You've given him an opportunity and you're dealing with those things. And I pray that for each of you this week, God would just speak to your hearts, look back through the passage, look at these things that he suggests, and then say, what do I need to do this week to take ownership of who I am, where I am? And bring that self-control and that discipline into your life. And I'm telling you, radical things can happen. And what will be happening is love starts to come into your life and holiness begins to flow forth from your life automatically. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And thank you for the fact that your Holy Spirit, you've promised us that he will help us in these areas. Before we were a Christian, we had no power to get any control in our lives. And when we would obsessively control one area, another area would automatically go out of sync. But with your Holy Spirit, you can make us whole. You can make us complete. You can fill in the gaps where we're lacking. And so, God, we pray that you will do just that for us. Help us to discover and to begin to live out that holy life of love that comes from us moving through the fruit of the Spirit, starting with love, ending with self-control. Help us to be excited about it, not dreading it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus,